Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West, and do you want to swim in rivers as well as the ocean? The Cooks River in Sydney has been variously described as an open sewer, the river of death, and one of Australia's most polluted rivers. Yet there are plans, possibly rather hopeful plans, but still plans, to bring swimming back to the river. There are numerous such rivers in cities around the world. So how realistic is the idea that you could bring swimming back to such polluted areas? Could ex-industrial rivers join the oceans and dams as recreational swimming spots in Australia? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of reason to be optimistic because I think that you can see a change in attitude that where you're really seeing the community starting to drive change of policy. And we can see those sorts of people are starting to be very effective. It's a local government, community-based initiative uh, trying to influence state government planning, not, not the other way around. Professor Stuart Kahn from the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of New South Wales studies sustainable urban water management and has studied the chemical composition of the Cooks River and how the pollutants got there. He thinks that, whilst it may be a long way off, there are precedents around the world for bringing swimming back to such polluted rivers. I started by asking Stuart why the Cooks River has recently received less attention than some of Sydney's other less polluted, but perhaps better looking, rivers. Is it all too hard? Uh, not so much that there's less interest in the Cooks River, but that recently there has been more interest generated in the Parramatta River. There is, a, you might know, there's a, a group of local government areas that have got together known as the Parramatta River Catchment Group yep. uh, that are pushing for a long-term strategic plan to improve water quality up to the point where the river can become suitable for swimming again for recreational uses. So so I'm not suggesting that interest has disappeared from from the Cooks River, but it's grown rapidly around the Parramatta River and um, they're, they're starting to become very organised. And in the next few months, I believe, we'll start to see that the, the campaign, campaign that's being developed there um, rolling out and trying to produce a much higher public profile. That would be... Fascinating, because that's what really interests me about the Cooks River as well, because there were some uh, ideas that maybe you'd be able to swim in the Cooks River again too. But reading your report and um, associated things I've read, that seems like a massive long shot to be able to swim in these in these places. Yeah, so it's an interest that I have in, in looking at urban rivers that have potentially been polluted for a long time and thinking about can you bring back some of these urban rivers to that quality, so where people can safely swim in it. But the Cooks River does indeed characterise some of the key challenges in that uh, the, the development that goes along both sides of the Cook River, Cooks River um, is relatively old. The sewers are old, some of them approaching 100 years old. Uh, and the two key issues really are, one, that many of the sewers are broken, and it's not easy to find broken sewers, uh, and broken sewers will leak into whatever waterway is naturally down gradient, so the Cooks River in this case. And the other problem is that the sewage systems have actually been designed to overflow into the stormwater system, which then flows into the, the river. In fact, the river has always, has for a long time, been considered to be part of the stormwater system. That's, that's part of the method of moving floodwaters and stormwaters out of the suburbs and into the ocean. 
So, so the sewers overflow into the Cooks River, and until we fix that problem, then you certainly have a major public health concern around swimming after a wet weather event. That's what I found fascinating about when I was reading the report or the media release that, um, I mean, I knew that sewers overflowed um, into into rivers. They were designed that way if there was you know, right. stormwater, but I didn't realise that it would happen in dry weather as well. And yet you found you know, high levels of all sorts of contaminants in dry weather. Yeah, so in dry weather, we're not so much talking about the overflows. Those overflows are specifically called wet weather overflows. Um, but in dry weather, if you can start to pick up indicators of sewage contamination, which we did in that report, uh, that tells you that the sewers are actually broken and they're leaking permanently. So regardless of the weather, you've, you've simply got leakage. These are Many of these sewers are old terracotta pipes. When terracotta pipes are 100 years old and they're underground in areas that, that are going to move, areas that have tree, tree roots in them, particularly after we've been through a few droughts like the millennium drought, uh, trees are very clever. Trees are very tree roots are very capable of breaking into pipes and, and they will, they'll find a f small fracture and they will effectively crack open a pipe um, in order to get the tree root into that source of water when, when the ground is dry. Uh, dry ground also leads to movement as well. And so when, when the ground dries out, um, there's more opportunity for mechanical breakages of, of pipes. So we've been through lots of different periods of wet periods and dry periods, and there are lots of old trees, fig trees in particular, are notorious for, for what their roots can do. It's not surprising that there are broken sewers underground. And um, the, the, the difficult part will be identifying where they are and finding the resources to come up with in order to fix them because most a lot of those sewers run through people's backyards they're on private property as well as public property uh and it's a big it's a big deal to go around replacing sewers in a neighborhood yeah and i mean the cooks river has been described as i think maybe even by you as like basically an open sewer throughout through the center of sydney uh, right so i mean that that conjures up um it's not a nice picture. images of of right and there are worse situations around the world where where you have constant flowing open sewers which are purely sewage obviously a lot of what's in the cooks river is not sewage it's it's stormwater runoff um which is what it should be to, to a large degree there's there's stormwater runoff and there's stormwater runoff um but uh, so so a lot of it is not sewage but it certainly carries sewage. It conveys sewage from one end of the Cooks River down to the other, to Botany Bay, um, as a sewer would do. I, I like, uh, I was fascinated by the list of chemicals that you found in the Cooks River from, you know, caffeine, which you might expect in, in people's uh, in urine, through to, you know, anti-convulsant pharmaceuticals and analgesics and pesticides, blood lipid uh, regulating pharmaceuticals. There was a massive list of uh, interesting compounds you found. They thought they all yeah. survived. Right. And, and that itself is an interesting area of science, but it's a well-established one now. So I actually did my PhD in, uh, at the end of the 90s on looking at the fate of pharmaceutical drugs going through sewage treatment plants. And, and since that period onwards to now, there's, there's been a huge amount of, of research in that area. And we know that there are certain pharmaceutical drugs that do survive the sewage treatment processes. In this case, they don't have to, right? There's no sewage treatment process. We're just talking about raw sewage going straight into the river. But, but even after a sewage treatment plant, we can measure many of these chemicals in the effluents of sewage treatment plants 
Uh, and it's work that we do routinely now. We, we run our analytical methods for those chemicals at least on a weekly basis. Um, because we use those chemicals as indicators, they tell us where there is sewage. There, there's no big manufacturing factories for all of these diverse pharmaceuticals around Marrickville or in the catchment of the Cooks River. Um, the own, and, and most of them don't occur naturally. Um, some of them do. Salicylic acid, for example, is a natural product. But most of the chemicals that we look at do not occur naturally. Uh, and the only reasonable hypothesis for how they can all end up in a waterway like the Cooks River is through sewage. So, so they're a very useful and valuable indicator for, for specifically that purpose, more, more so than some of the bacterial indicators that we use. Often we look for E. coli or enterococci, but E. coli and enterococci also come from birds and, and other animals. Um, they're not going to be uh, excreting the same suite of pharmaceutical drugs that you would you would expect from a large community um, that that contributes to the sewage discharges in in that area. This this reminds me. It, I, I probably should have googled this before talking to you, but there was a study I think a year or two years ago that that maybe you were involved in, and they were looking at the concentrations of I think they were artificial sweeteners in community pools, and they were they were using that as a marker for the amount of urine in the pool. I guess you're doing a very similar thing. Uh, we have done very similar work, actually. I had a PhD student who was um, looking at various pharmaceuticals and things similar to some of the artificial sweeteners. In fact, I think she looked at one artificial sweetener. I don't think the study that, that you're referring to was, was ours, but yes, we've done the same thing, that, that you, can, you can measure, and caffeine's a good example. You can measure the concentrations of these chemicals um, in swimming pools, and they tell you about whether or not people are excreting potentially into the swimming pool there's also the possibility that some of these things are excreted through sweat um, as as well as urine so it becomes a little bit complicated the, the more difficult part with the swimming pool is you have a much much smaller population contributing to what you're measuring you might be talking about hundreds of people in a in a public swimming pool so the chances of them um, taking and excreting particular pharmaceuticals is much much lower than what you have in a sewage catchment which might convey the sewage of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. So you have more reliable concentrations in that circumstance and you can infer um, more reliable conclusions as a consequence. Oh, that's interesting. So when the government say they want to test uh, people's urine for drugs, you can do it. You can do it out of the wastewater. And they have been. There's been a bit of um, national media coverage doing exactly that in the last 12 months. So there have been a couple of programs run um, there was a big national survey, but I think in South Australia it's um, being looked at in more detail, a little bit in Queensland as well, um, where there was a survey taken of um, sewers from cities and country towns all around Australia. They actually planned it very well. The, there was the people who um, undertook the survey were based at the University of Queensland. They planned it very well and they took, um, they arranged for all of their samples to be collected on census night last year. And uh, despite the debacle that census night turned out to be, it is the one night of the year where you actually know where everybody is. And so they had a good sense of um, all of that census data that they could bring together and they could relate it to concentrations of various illicit drugs. And they looked at um, things like cocaine, amphetamines, um, morphine, which is a metabolite of heroin and other drugs. And they looked at the concentrations of these various drugs in sewage 
and drew conclusions in terms of where are the hotspots, where, where, which, which cities have the highest concentrations of particular drug use. So um, how, how useful that will prove to be, I guess we'll wait and see. Um, but there's obviously potential there for uh, identifying areas for where resources should be prioritised at the moment in, in terms of uh, data that we have around drug use in particular areas that relies on seizures and, and ambulance calls. And by the time um, ambulances start to get called, it's a bit too late. So there's potential to be able to get more real-time data, real-time statistics about what's going on, and therefore hopefully to respond to that in some kind of a positive way. That's a fascinating idea. So in, in the Cooks River or Parramatta River, do they have a bunch of uh, sort of sensors that send you back data every 10 minutes and you do this in some big data style, or is it still somebody going down and taking a water sample and, uh, and doing their thing? So actually, the piece of research that we did at the time was about trying to develop exactly such a sensor. So we weren't really going out to measure pharmaceuticals in the water. As, as, as surprising as it may be to, to many people that you can measure them, it wasn't unexpected for us. We almost anticipated, we effectively anticipated that we'd be able to measure these pharmaceuticals. Um, but what we were wanting to do was to see if we could relate the concentrations of those pharmaceuticals to a particular type of sensor that we were working on at the time, which is based on fluorescence spectroscopy, um, and if we could get some kind of correlation between the two. So yeah, measuring pharmaceuticals is a very slow and laborious process. You go down there with a bottle, you bring back litres and litres of water, and you spend days extracting them and analysing them. Um, if you can get some sort of real-time sensor to correlate with those results, then that should tell you when you're having sewage overflows, when you're having sewage discharges into the river, and therefore when the river might be at a more or less acceptable state for recreational use. And I guess it, depending where they are, it might give you a sense of which pipes are busted at, at what point of the river. Precisely. Yep, exactly. Is there any evidence of the old industrial history of the Cooks River still there? Are you detecting heavy metals or whatever dead bodies decay to or, you know, that sort of thing? You can count on it. If you go looking for heavy metals in the sediment of the Cooks River, you'll find them, just as has been well established in the Parramatta River because they come from the same sources. They, 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 one, they come from the old historical legacy industry and, and yes, there was a lot of um, in light industry, light to medium uh, industry in the Cooks River catchment, including um, obviously lots of old tanneries and um, there were there were um, metal work, there was um, metal production going on or metal workings um, going on within that um, catchment. But the main source that we see now is runoff from the urban environment, runoff from roads in stormwater produces. Uh, measurable concentrations of things like cadmium and zinc, manganese, um, of copper, iron uh, in the waterway. So, and and most many of those things will accumulate in the sediment below. So we know that there there will certainly be historical contamination, and there'll be more recent contamination as well. Some really interesting um, papers 
came from the University of Sydney, a guy called Gavin Birch at Sydney University, who over the last 20 years has been undertaking research looking at sediment cores. So where you, you um, effectively put a long hollow pipe, push a long hollow pipe down into the sediment under the river. This is in the Parramatta River. Uh, you pull it up and you pull out a, a, a depth core. You know what, I'm, what I mean by this? Yeah, and so... Yeah. And then analysing the concentrations of various metals at various corresponding depths. And he's been able to really, you know, it's a snapshot looking back in history at um, where there were peak concentrations of, um, of metals running into the river, um, where they've started to flatten off now. We have less of many contaminants going into the river than we did 50 or 60 years ago. Um, but they haven't reduced to zero and they're unlikely to reduce to zero. They've flattened out um, as long as you've got stormwater that's capturing water off roads and, and delivering it to to rivers, then it's going to contain metals. You get wear and tear of car bodies, brake pads and everything else that goes on on the road. So with regards trying to remediate the Parramatta or the Cooks River to be able to swim in it, would you have to dredge it and get rid of all of that or is it better just to sort of leave it completely and uh, let it settle and never touch it or how do you do that yeah that, that's a that's a good question and that's a question that is very much going on at the Parramatta River at the moment where they're, they're seriously looking at wanting to open new sites for swimming and how much of a problem is is the sediment and it's arguably worse in the Parramatta River because you have the big dioxins contamination from from homebush from the 50s and 60s uh, would you try and dredge it at this stage and with current technologies, probably not, because all you're going to do is mix it all up again. At the moment, it's relatively stable. So as long as you can contain it in the sediment, it's not going anywhere. But as long as you can contain it there, people aren't going to necessarily be exposed to it either, which, of course, means that if you were going to find swimming sites, you'd have to select sites for which you knew that the sediment quality, at least for the top meter, <laughs> the top proportion of that sediment, um, was safe to be exposed to. Um, dredging it, I don't think we're. I don't think that's a realistic um, proposal at the moment in terms of remediation. That um, you would just stir it up and make a big mess and bring it all to the top again. Uh, at the moment, it's probably better off where it is. Okay, so it's still a little while off before we can swim deep in the uh, the depths of uh, the Parramatta River. Well, the, the the ambition is to be is to open new sites there by 2025. So um, there are different ways. That there, there are different sites. They're not all close to Homebush. So there are potential sites. Um, that, in fact, they're listed on the website of um, the Parramatta River Catchment Group. They've got a campaign called Our Living River, which lists their proposed um, swimming sites that they want to investigate for the things that we're talking about, water quality as well as, as, well as sediment quality and exposure to that sediment. Um, but if there are sites where the, the top sediment is, is not too contaminated and uh, potentially a site that you can access relatively deep waters without having to stir up too much sediment, um, I think that uh, reopening a site like that in the medium to short term is not that unrealistic. It really depends where you are on, on the river. The further upstream you go, the more difficult it becomes. But there are sites downstream on the Parramatta River. There are already open swimming sites downstream on the Parramatta River. The Dawn Fraser Swimming Pool is um, right at the bottom of what we traditionally call the Parramatta River at Balmain, just before you get to the 
Sydney Harbour Bridge and you can swim there. And there are two other sites that are monitored by Beachwatch. I think they're um, Carburetor Beach and Chiswick Baths are both uh, open swimming sites. So to achieve the same thing in the Cooks River, I don't think is completely unrealistic, um, particularly if you're talking downstream, but there is perhaps a bit further to go with um, understanding and managing some of the stormwater issues and the sewage overflow issues in that location. And, of course, you're close to the mouth of the Alexandra Canal the further you go down the river as well, and, and the Alexandra Canal is another very polluted waterway. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention that. Um, it, it doesn't look nearly as, well, there's no trees or anything. It's just a paved canal, really. But uh, you might have seen, I think it was last year, there was a shark in Alexandria Canal. And a pretty big one, too. It must have swum up chasing some fish or something. Yeah, right. Um, I don't think I did see that, actually. Yeah, so. uh, it was it was pretty big. So um, I don't imagine fishing in these places is the smartest idea. I wouldn't fish, fish in the Cooks River. No, um, for largely the same reason that New South Wales Health advises against fishing west of the Sydney Harbour Bridge on the Parramatta River is that, yeah, many chemical contaminants that are present are accumulated in fish and you get much higher concentrations in fish than you do in the waterway itself. Uh, in Parramatta River, the issue is all about dioxins, um, but until somebody had a very close look at water quality in the Cooks River, I wouldn't be eating fish out of there either. <laughs> I did That's see my th- personal opinion. <laughs> well, I saw some people fishing down there and I think they... I'm yeah. not sure they were catching any fish, but I think they caught a shopping trolley and an O-bike. What about what about your work? Um, where where are you headed now? I know you started off in um, science and now you're working uh, in engineering and doing a lot of work with Sydney Water. Yeah, I do have work going on with Sydney Water, so projects come and go to a large degree with Sydney Water. But um, yeah, most most of my work is around engineered systems, and so I do I have a little bit of work going on looking at uh, rivers and water quality in rivers, but really only in very urban environments and looking at urban contaminants from engineered systems, sewages, sewage and uh, sewage treatment plants. So most of what I do is more focused on what's actually happening at the treatment plants, so either the drinking water treatment plant or the sewage treatment plant. Uh, I focus a lot on water recycling, so it's another reason to be really looking at some of these pharmaceuticals and other organic contaminants in water because if we're going to take wastewater, sewage, and then treat it to a level that is ideally suitable for uses such as drinking, then we need to have a very good understanding of what sorts of contaminants are present, how well and how reliably we're removing them by various treatment processes and, and what quality water we're producing at the end of those processes. So that's that's the major part of my focus on, on what I do. It'd be very difficult to set up a... I mean, how do you treat stormwater going into a river? Is that even, is yep. that even possible? I mean, I know you filter for plastics and things like this, it, but... It, right. So, so, yeah, that's the challenge. So we're, we're talking about 
a uh, very diffuse source of pollution as opposed to a point source. So sewage is in many ways easier because we have more or less a point source. The sewage is captured in the sewers uh, and delivered to the sewage treatment plant ultimately by a single pipe at the end of the process. Um, but yeah, stormwater flows into rivers at effectively an infinite number of points um, around the perimeter of the river. Uh, how do you treat it? There are some opportunities, and in fact, there are some examples on the Cooks River. I know that Sydney Water um, have been involved in re-establishing um, some wetlands, um, small scale, but there are um, there are some newly re-established wetlands on the Cooks River, which do uh, capture or, or um, uh, intervene on the stormwater flow on its way to the river, slows the stormwater down with, within the wetlands and the wetlands themselves um, can have significant water quality Im improvement benefits and particularly around things like removing nutrients, nitrogen and, and phosphorus, which lead to algal growth in, in rivers. A, a more longer term strategy though comes down to how we design our cities and it's about keeping uh, stormwater runoff um, from concrete channels, ultimately. If, if the, the, the big problem is when stormwater hits the roads, uh, either runs into a concrete channel that, that we've, as we've created to many of the tributaries to the Cooks River now, the, the few of them that exist, uh, and or, or, or leads to the sorts of sewage overflows that we were talking about where you have a big influx of stormwater going into a sewer. The natural system is very different to that. In a natural system, you don't get a lot of overland flow into rivers unless you have a major flooding event. After most rainfall events in a natural environment, the water soaks into the ground. And then as it soaks into the ground, the, it becomes part of the water table. After lots of rain, the water table will rise uh, and it will gradually itself flow towards the river but underground and so flowing underground gradually produces water at the end of that process which is a much much higher quality than water that has arrived very suddenly along a concrete channel picking up all the pollutants uh, as it goes so if we can design cities where we enhance opportunities for water to slow down and to in, be infiltrated into the ground and to arrive at the river slowly underground as opposed to rapidly above ground, then you can start to have real water quality improvements in a river. Um, and, and you don't need to think about treatment. The, the treatment happens naturally underground, so we don't need to engineer the treatment processes. We just need to engineer designs where we in, encourage infiltration. And there's lots of that going on. There, there are... Um, many programs in lots of cities around the world where people are developing things like what's called rain gardens. Um, a rain garden is just like any other garden, except that it is, uh, it's built in a depression. It's built in a low spot in someone's backyard, say, or in a public park, so that the water runs to that point or rather than, than away from it. And, and it's designed to encourage the runoff of the water into that rain garden where there you've made sure that you've used soil and other materials uh, in the bedding of that garden that are permeable, that are going to in, uh, increase the permeability or increase the flow of water underground um, as a consequence of entering into that rain garden. And it's not just gardens. There are all sorts of ways that we can redesign roads. Um, we talk about vegetated swales, so the gutters on roads. And you see it in some new development areas, even around Sydney, where um, roads have actually... 
um, been designed, streets have been designed not to flow into a concrete gutter, but to flow into a vegetated um, permeable basin or a permeable layer um, along the side of the road, which is all about encouraging that water to infiltrate to underground and therefore to make its way to the river the slower, uh, more natural and more beneficial way. That's fascinating. So does that work with sewerage systems too? Because they'll still have an overflow, won't they? Uh, so it sort of works with sewerage systems. Sewerage systems still have to be channels, right? They still have to be pipes um, that, that we – because we do want to transport that water to the sewage treatment plant relatively quickly. We're not, we, don't, we don't want long, slow underground movement um, of, of the sewage. Not that that's necessarily in itself a major problem, but that's unlikely to change. That's the way we, we manage and we treat um, sewage. But by the, the big advantage to sewage would be that if we are capturing the stormwater and we're directing the stormwater underground as opposed to into stormwater pipes, uh, then we're much less likely to produce sewage overflows. So for various uh, yep. reasons, stormwater infiltrates sewers. Um, and, and if we can prevent that from occurring, then we'll have less sewage being discharged into the environment. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, I get it. That's that's really interesting. I've taken up half an hour of your time. I reckon that's about all I uh, really uh, wanted to ask you, unless there's anything else you wanted to, to add about about any of this or whether you've got any final you know, positive thoughts about swimming returning to Australia's rivers. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of um, reason to be optimistic because I think that you can see a change in attitude and, and the adi- you can see it coming from the Cooks River. In fact, that was probably the first place that I noticed it was the – uh, the, the 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 mud crabs and the Cooks River um, are they called the Cooks River Catchment Group something like that uh, um, Cooks River Valley Association ah that's it the yep. CRVA um, so so looking at the Cooks River Valley Association and groups that are emerging like that where you're really seeing the community starting to drive change and to push for a change of attitude and a change of policy and we can see those sorts of people are starting to be very effective and and that's really where it's coming from the Parramatta River as well it's a local government community-based initiative uh, trying to influence state government planning not not the other way around last year I went to Boston and um, in Boston the the big river that flows through Boston is called the Charles River and the Charles River is notorious for being one of the most polluted rivers in America I don't know if you know that 60s Standells song called I Love That Dirty River. So it's all about the Charles River in Boston. So, so it's famous for being contempt, for being dirty. Um, and they have a very similar program going on. There's a community-driven program to clean up the Charles River, to bring back swimming in right in, right in downtown Boston. Um, awesome. And they've been very successful. They, it's not open for swimming every day, but they have open day. I mean, Boston's pretty cold most of the year anyway, but they have a number of designated open swimming days in the summer when they have lifesavers and people down there at the river to try and make sure that everybody's safe. And it's very popular. And I, I, I went to Boston for another reason, but I made sure I dropped in on uh, the people who are working on this campaign. And just after I did, I went for a walk down by the river to have a look at the spot where they've been opening it for swimming wasn't open on that particular day and i heard a tour boat going along next to me on the water and just purely coincidence that the one thing that i heard the guy saying on the tour boat over the pa was how proud we all are that this used to be a really dirty river and now there's this campaign that's all about reopening it for swimming and it's a great thing for boston so you know it's actually gotten to that point where that's the thing that they point out on on, from the tour guide 
to tourists visiting Boston now. And I think that the opportunities for the same sorts of pride and change in attitude in Sydney are pretty obvious. I don't think it's going to take a lot of work to um, get people to focus on and appreciate the opportunities for cleaning up dirty old urban rivers. Oh, that's awesome. And do you still live near the Cooks River? No, I don't. I used to. I used to live in Newtown, but now I'm in Randwick. Ah, okay. I'm not <laughs> sure. Well, you've got the beach now, so... <laughs> And we have the same issues. So we have stormwater flowing onto Coogee Beach, um, producing many of the same, same water quality issues. Thanks very much for joining me on this edition of the pod, and thanks very much to Professor Stuart Kahn for giving us hope that we might be able to swim in Sydney's polluted rivers once again. If you'd like more information on anything you've heard in this episode, get over to our website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And if you want to join the community movement to bring swimming back to the Cooks River, I've put some links up. Thanks very much for joining me on this edition of the pod. My name's Mark West, and I promise next time we'll be swimming in the ocean. Swimming in the ocean.